Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I am chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland University. You are not the person you are accustomed to hearing on these uh, American Idea podcasts. That's normally done by Jeff Sickinger, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. However, if there's one thing that's been loud and clear from our listeners is you want more episodes, and we aim to provide you with more episodes. Uh, however, uh, Jeff is, uh, has enough on his plate, so he, uh, he, he honored me by asking me to step in and, uh, and take on some of these, which I am, of course, happy to do. Um, so if you see me once in a while, instead of Jeff, you will understand that that's the reason why. Our subject for today, Edwin Starr in his famous 1970 song famously asked, War? Good God, y'all, what is it good for? His answer, of course, was absolutely nothing. Nothing. However, we know that war is awfully good at certain things, and one of them is expanding the powers of the presidency. So what we're going to be talking about today are uh, presidential war powers. And uh, I, am, I am pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, Ben Slomsky. Dr. Slomsky is Assistant Professor of History at Ashland University. He teaches uh, many of our courses on American institutions, such as President and Congress, uh, as well as courses on constitutional rights and constitutional law. Uh, 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 Dr. Slomsky, I want to say Ben, right? Let's, let's keep it a little casual. Uh, ben is a uh, native of Erie, Pennsylvania. He earned his uh, bachelor's degree in political science from St. Vincent College. I know because I'm from there. You don't say St. Vincent's. It's St. Vincent College. He has an MA and PhD in political science from Baylor University. Let's just start. go back to, uh, to the beginning. Right? The, 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 the framers of the Constitution obviously understood that there would be situations because the United States would be a sovereign power. There would be circumstances in which it was a, in, in, in which the country would find itself at war. And there was a sense that the ordinary rules in that circumstance might not apply. What did the framers intend for uh, uh, the powers of a president in wartime? Yeah, that's a great question. And sometimes, like a lot of these questions, it almost hinges on who you count as a framer or not. Uh, so this comes up immediately at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, one of the original proposals uh, is to give Congress the power to make war. The final version of the Constitution gives Congress the power to declare war instead. Uh, and originally what was suggested is well, Congress can make war, that wouldn't exclude the president from being able 
to make uh, defensive measures if we're attacked uh, that wouldn't prevent the president from taking immediate defensive measures. But others said, this is going too far. Uh, if you say make war, doesn't that give Congress all the power to make war? And sort of the final compromise is Congress can declare war. Uh, one of the powers of Congress in Article 1, Section 8 is Congress declares war. But the president in Article 2 is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, as well as the state militias, whenever they're called into service. So there's immediately a question in the text of the Constitution right there. Uh, Congress declares war. The president is commander-in-chief of the armed forces. How do you split those two powers? Let me ask you, this may be a semantic difference. Making war versus being commander-in-chief of the armed forces, including the militias, as you mentioned. Is, is, there, is, there, more, is there more to making war than simply being commander-in-chief? of the armed forces. Yeah, uh, it's hard to say. And it's always hard when you're talking about things that failed at the Constitutional Convention, because most of the delegates didn't want to give Congress the power to make war. Uh, they thought it was a poor idea. Uh, but maybe you can draw that inference that the fact that they chose to not give Congress the power to make war and instead make it declare war, while making the president commander in chief does sort of suggest that commander-in-chief involves making war. Uh, at the very least, uh, what it's been held to be is direct the movement of troops. Uh, it's generally accepted the president can order troops in the military to go to places. That gets into questions of what if he sends them into an area where there might be a conflict? Uh, but then that's when you get into gray areas. And that's sort of the great and confounding thing about war powers is there's all sorts of gray areas. So you're, you're saying that the proposal was to have Congress be the war-making body, but the president to still be commander-in-chief? It's unclear. Uh, and again, they in the end, they don't go that way. Yeah. Uh, that And sort of there's a bigger, when you look at the Constitutional Convention, there's a bigger meta-narrative, sort of. Uh, I don't like that word, but I can't think of anything better, uh, that the presidency starts off pretty weak at the beginning. Uh, at the beginning of the convention, most delegates are fine with a pretty weak executive and a pretty strong Congress. By the end of the convention, uh, you find Congress has had its powers more limited, and the president's gotten stronger. And part of that might just be that all the delegates know they're looking at the guy who'll be the first president. They all know George Washington, who's there as president of the convention, will be the first president of the United States. Uh, but part of it, I think, also is you have delegates like Governor Morris, uh, Alexander Hamilton, when he's there, uh, who are arguing for stronger executive power. And I think eventually that sort of gains a foothold, uh, that by the end of the convention, uh, delegates who might not have wanted a strong president at first, have suddenly come around to a lot stronger president than they initially desired. So uh, by the end of the, 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 by the time that a final constitution is prepared and ratified, you have a model of a strong presidency, but of course there's a lot undefined, right? So, and it's left to, uh, le left to the Washington administration 
to set precedents that would that would last for you know decades, if not centuries later. Talk about how, uh, please talk uh, talk more about how this how the administration took the language of the Constitution and put it into practice. Yes, uh, this is where I have to say that it really does depend on who you consider a framer uh, or whose interpretation might be more definitive. Uh, because uh, Washington and Alexander Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury, but also essentially Washington's chief of staff, who's sort of his second in command, helping him define the presidency, they have a particular interpretation of the Constitution uh, that others do not, uh, that James Madison will eventually break from his old Federalist co-author Hamilton uh, and Thomas Jefferson, who was not at the convention, uh, but he'll have a different interpretation. Uh, but Washington and Hamilton go with a pretty strong president, especially in terms of war powers. Uh, so Washington makes a lot of bold moves that are downright controversial in his day. Uh, he's the only president still to this day uh, who personally leads the military out into the field. Uh, he leads the military out into Western Pennsylvania, uh, sort of an area John and I both know well, uh, to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, the only time a president's as commander-in-chief has actually commanded the army in the field. Uh, he also unilaterally proclaims neutrality. Uh, the U.S. tries avoiding uh, getting forced into the wars in Europe. Uh, they don't want to get dragged into the conflict between France and Britain. Washington, without congressional authorization, declares the United States as neutral. And then you get the famous uh, Pacificus Helvidius debates. Uh, Hamilton writes under the pseudonym Pacificus. James Madison writes under the pseudonym Helvidius. Uh, and Madison's position is, you need Congress. Only Congress can change the state of the United States. It, only Congress can put the United States in a different position towards foreign nations. Uh, so Madison wants Congress to be sort of the overseer of foreign policy and war policy. To declare neutrality isn't a change of status, right? It's simply announcing the, 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 announcing the status quo. Right. Th that's Hamilton's argument, yeah. that Washington's not making a new law. He's simply declaring the current state of the United States, which is peace, and he's preserving that. Uh, but Hamilton goes a bit further, uh, and this is where maybe Jefferson really got upset because it's Jefferson who writes to Madison and say, Hamilton's picked up his pen. Now you must pick up your pen and tear him to pieces or something to that effect. Uh, it's Jefferson who tells Madison to strike back. Uh, but Hamilton goes further uh, because Hamilton also argues uh, that the president is the organ of intercourse with other nations. Uh, in other words, the president is the main agent of foreign policy, including war, uh, not Congress. Uh, and his reasoning is, essentially, you've got to have that one person who represents the whole nation, who speaks with one voice and can also act quickly. And only the president has the capacity to do that. Uh, now we have 535 members of Congress. How can 535 members of Congress, or even uh, 65 in the House back in the day, 
how can they represent the nation to other nations and be the agent of foreign policy? And that's ultimately Hamilton's argument. But it gives the president basically a privileged position in foreign policy and war. And obviously that's been the, the case down to the present day. Um, are there, are there some particular episodes that, that maybe you'd like to talk about where, where uh, that has sharpened the definition of the president's powers or expanded them? Yeah, uh, let me say before, there's certainly several key episodes, uh, but let me at least mention something more about Jefferson too uh, that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, because Jefferson has a different interpretation uh, that, than Hamilton's and then Washington's uh, that ends up being significant too. Uh, so Jefferson was, as uh, some of our audience might know, he was a good student of John Locke, uh, maybe more than any other American founder. Uh, he read many of Locke's writings and took them very seriously, uh, including this chapter uh, of Locke's second treatise, uh, Locke's second treatise of government that lays out a lot of the things we hear about in the Declaration of Independence, natural rights, consent of the governed. Chapter 14 also talks about something called the prerogative power. And the prerogative power, Locke defines as the power of the executive to act where the law is silent or even against the law for the good of the nation. So in other words, the president can act where the law says nothing. It's unclear who can act or can even break the law for the good of the nation. And Locke favors the legislature. Uh, he's a legislative supremacist, at least in my reading, in, in a lot of scholars' readings. Uh, the legislature should be supreme, but he recognizes there are situations where the law is indefinite or you cannot respond immediately. And there might be situations you even have to break the law. And it's the executive's duty for the good of the nation to break the law if he has to. Uh, so his example is, uh, if a house is on fire, you can tear down the neighbor's house to stop it from spreading. Even if the neighbor's totally innocent, maybe it's a 99-year-old grandmother who lived her whole life perfectly, you can tear down her house, which is totally illegal, to prevent the fire from consuming the whole neighborhood. Uh, and Jefferson embraces this. Uh, Jefferson, unlike Washington, wants a more limited president. He thinks the president should defer to Congress. Uh, but he has that exception in there uh, that he ends up using with the Louisiana Purchase, uh, which isn't a war issue, but Jefferson uses this logic. He thinks the Louisiana Purchase is illegal. He thinks he can't buy foreign territory as president. But he says he has the power to act outside the law for the good of the nation because the nation's good requires adding this territory. Hi, I'm Jeremy Gipton, producer of The American Idea, and I have a favor to ask of you. I've included a link to a short listener survey with this video, and I would really appreciate it if you would give us a minute of your time to give us some information that will help us continue to deliver the kinds of episodes on the kinds of topics that interest you most. In exchange for your time, we're going to, beginning on the 15th of February, for eight weeks, draw one name at random for those who have filled out the survey. 
And we're going to give those people a choice of one of three pieces of merchandise from our web store. The link to that store is with the survey itself. So again, I would really appreciate this. Thank you for listening. And thanks for listening to The American Idea. This, this analogy of the house on fire is a fascinating one. It immediately put me in mind of Franklin Roosevelt's press conference where he, where he used it to defend what would be called Lendley's. The notion that if, if your neighbor's house is on fire and then he asks to use your garden hose, of course, you're going to give it to him. It's interesting how the fire analogy comes is, 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 is repeatedly invoked to justify extraordinary activities on the part of the uh, on the part of the president. Yeah, because it's a clear common sense analogy of a real crisis that most people would recognize. Uh, and another thing that comes to mind that a real life example, uh, not that Louisiana purchase isn't one, uh, but a more recent example where we probably saw a prerogative president. Uh, September 11th, 2001, during the 9-11 attacks, uh, President George W. Bush, uh, it was actually Vice President Dick Cheney at first, uh, but then it was confirmed by President Bush. Uh, President Bush gave the order to the Air Force to shoot down a civilian airliner that had been hijacked. Uh, it would have been Flight 93. Uh, it ended up not coming to that because the passengers took the flight down first. That's clearly illegal. It's obviously illegal under ordinary circumstances for the president of the United States to tell the Air Force to shoot down a civilian airline. But in that situation, uh, even though everyone understood the gravity of the situation and how tragic it was, there wasn't really a question of could the president do this? There was thinking the president really had to do this to prevent any further attacks. Can we maybe talk a little bit about uh, Lincoln, who claimed some some pretty extraordinary powers during the Civil War? Not a declared war, I understand, but yes, uh, Lincoln's a great case, uh, and there's a whole lot of things Lincoln does. But I'll just maybe single in on the most controversial one: uh, the suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. It's a bunch of fancy words. Uh, that come to us back from the English tradition. Uh, but it's a pretty straightforward concept. Basically what habeas corpus guarantees is the government can't just throw you in jail indefinitely. You've got to be charged with a crime. For the government to hold you in prison, you must be indicted for a crime. It can't just arbitrarily keep you in jail for no reason. And so if you feel you are arbitrarily detained, you can have a lawyer uh, file for a writ of habeas corpus. Uh, and habeas corpus is a Latin phrase. Uh, it basically means produce the body. And a lawyer would file a writ of habeas corpus. You'd be brought before a judge, and the judge would basically ask, uh, okay, is there a legitimate reason for holding this person? Have they been indicted or not? And if the government can't get enough to indict you, then the judge will let you be released. Now, the Constitution does say habeas corpus can be suspended. Article 1, Section 9 says the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless in cases of an emergency or rebellion where the public safety requires it. 
So the Constitution allows the government to suspend habeas corpus. You can, if it's suspended, detain Americans indefinitely in cases of a rebellion or an emergency where public safety requires it. Lincoln does this during the outbreak of the Civil War. The question, though, is can the president do this? Uh, there's actually a legal case. Uh, it's called Ex Parte Merriman. Uh, it's written by Chief Justice Roger Taney of the Supreme Court. Although it's complicated, it's not exactly a Supreme Court case because Taney's acting as a circuit court judge. Uh, and Taney's also the Chief Justice who wrote the infamous uh, Dred Scott decision. Uh, but in this case, uh, John Merriman was a Confederate sympathizer in Maryland. He was tearing up railroads, and one of the generals arrests him indefinitely under uh, the suspension of habeas corpus. Taney says the president can't suspend habeas corpus. Lincoln, or Lincoln can't. Congress can't. Uh, so Taney's argument is only Congress can suspend it because it's an Article One, which lays out Congress. It's not an Article Two which lays out the president's powers. Uh, and so therefore, this should be Congress's job. Lincoln's answer, he's, very, he's a very careful reader of the Constitution. He points out Article 1, Section 9 never says who can suspend habeas corpus. It just says it can be suspended. And in Lincoln's reading, it depends on circumstances. And in this case, he's saying, I have to be the one to do it as president. Maybe not in every case, but in this case, at the outbreak of the Civil War, where we need immediate action, the president is the one who gets that power. And, and Congress was not in session at the time, correct? Yes, uh, that's a big part of his argument. Uh, the circumstances are huge for Lincoln here. Congress isn't in session, and even more, uh, a lot of the Confederate plan, especially in states like Maryland, was to prevent Congress from getting to Washington, D.C., uh, to impede them from getting into session. Uh, so Lincoln's argument is we can't wait around uh, for Congress to get here. It will take months or at least a good amount of time in 1861, plus the Confederacy's trying to stop them from meeting. Uh, so it falls to the president in this case. Um, so maybe we could uh, talk about a few other cases, maybe some, some 20th century uh, instances. Yeah, uh, you mentioned FDR before, uh, and Lend-Lease is pretty controversial, uh, but it pales in comparison to sort of his most controversial thing, which would be internment of Japanese Americans. Uh, this is leads to the infamous uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, Korematsu versus United States. Uh, so as a lot of our listeners might know, during World War II, uh, FDR, along with his military generals and with congressional approval, uh, here you do have a case of Congress actually approving the action. Uh, they choose to intern uh, Japanese Americans on the West Coast. Uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack, there's a fear of sabotage. Uh, that Japanese Americans might be prone to sabotage and espionage on the West Coast. And so, so to protect vital military institutions, 
uh, Japanese Americans are they're for, uh, first put into curfew, uh, but then they're forced out of their homes and into internment camps on the West Coast. Uh, and eventually it goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, Fred Korematsu uh, tried to avoid the internment order, uh, primarily because he was trying to get married uh, to a woman who was not a Japanese American, uh, his fiance, and he wanted the wedding to happen. And he even went to the extent of uh, trying to get facial surgery uh, to alter his appearance. Uh, but eventually he gets caught. Uh, and so he takes it to the Supreme Court. And it's a really interesting and controversial decision. Uh, it wasn't overturned until a few years ago. Uh, but the majority of the court says internment was constitutional. As difficult as it was, the court's argument was uh, it is necessary uh, to prevent espionage and sabotage. And so since internment had a close connection to stopping espionage and sabotage on the West Coast, it was justified as a necessary military measure. Essentially, the court's posture was, we aren't generals. Uh, judges aren't generals. We can't make this decision. We have to trust the military. Uh, although it's interesting, uh, Justice Frank Murphy, uh, a forgotten Supreme Court justice, uh, his dissenting opinion, and I believe he was the only member of the court uh, to actually serve in the military in some capacity, at least during World War II. Uh, he was, uh, I think, a JAG judge at some point during World War II. I have to double check that. I'm pretty sure on that. Uh, and his point is, yes, the military gets more leeway. We aren't generals. But they've got to give us some evidence. They don't just get a blank check to do whatever they want to do. They've got to provide tangible evidence this is necessary. And we haven't gotten that. All we've gotten are these very suspect sociological studies uh, that say things that uh, Murphy, in his opinion, says were racist, uh, and by today's standards would certainly be considered racist about Japanese Americans. Uh, but that's all there is. There's just these assumptions based on race. Uh, there's not any actual tangible evidence that says here is sabotage happening. Um, are there examples of uh, of cases where presidents tried to uh, tried to take on additional powers during wartime and were effectively stopped? I mean, Lincoln, uh, Tani writes his uh, writes his uh, ex parte Merriman in response to the uh, denial of habeas corpus. That kind of gets swatted down, and there, and there's there's approval for everything everything Lincoln does. Are there cases where the president has actually been stopped from doing what he wanted to do? Yes. Uh, so eight years, just eight years after Korematsu, uh, so Korematsu is 1944, 1952, our next war, the Korean War. Uh, president Harry Truman gets handed a big defeat by the Supreme Court. And it's essentially mostly the same Supreme Court, too, uh, that decided Korematsu, which suggests maybe, uh, maybe they reconsidered some things and possibly learned uh, from Korematsu. Uh, so Truman seizes the nation's steel mills during the Korean War. In the middle of the Korean War, we happen to have a national steel strike 
And this is a big issue because we need steel to produce things like tanks and guns. And so Truman, as commander-in-chief, decides to take over the nation's steel mills. He says, as president, because we need the steel to supply the military in Korea, he has the inherent power to order the Secretary of Commerce, a man named Charles Sawyer, to direct the nation's steel mills. So essentially, the steel mills go on strike. The Department of Commerce, under Secretary Sawyer, takes them over and orders them back to work. And the government has now taken control over private businesses. Uh, now, interestingly, there's no disagreement Congress could have done this. Uh, there is eminent domain under the Constitution. Uh, the Fifth Amendment in the Bill of Rights says uh, private property cannot be taken for public use without just compensation, which means the government can take private property for public use if there is the proper compensation given. But it's historically been accepted. That requires a congressional law if it's done at the federal level. Congress has to pass this via law. Uh, now, Truman tried to strain. Uh, he tried to find some congressional laws that you could stretch to authorize him to seize the steel mills, although it was generally concluded these were stretches. And Congress had even considered as part of a labor law a provision that would have allowed the president to intervene uh, during strikes and seize property, and they rejected it. Uh, so his real argument was he could do this as commander-in-chief. And the Supreme Court says no. They strike it down, and they stop the steel mill seizure, uh, basically on the two reasons that, number one, Congress could do this, not the president, but Congress didn't do this. Uh, but number two, uh, they do point out in the majority opinion that the president could do this in a theater of war. Uh, there's no question that in an actual theater of war where the fighting is happening, the president as commander-in-chief can seize enemy property. That's a universally accepted tradition. You can seize enemy property to hurt them and help you during war. The problem is Youngstown, Ohio is not the theater of the Korean War. Uh, and so instead, the court says, the commander-in-chief power doesn't apply to areas that aren't the theater of war, that might have some tangential related effect on the theater of war. Might it have made a difference that unlike World War II, the Korean War was not a war declared by Congress? I mean, in fact, Truman you know, famously referred to it, or, or at least didn't agree when a reporter said it was a police action. Right. That absolutely might have been part of it. Uh, the court doesn't bring it up, but that could be in the background. Although I'm no expert on the Korean War, uh, but I found there's some debate on this recently. Uh, so the conventional opinion is Truman ignored Congress. Uh, he himself took America into the Korean War as a United Nations police action, uh, as part of our responsibility under the United Nations. Uh, there's some scholars who say, though, if you look at the record, uh, Truman actually went to congressional leadership first and asked them about getting a declaration of war. 
And they told him, no, don't come to us. Uh, and so if that is true, uh, that's one of these instances of Congress shirking its responsibilities in war. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do get instances of this, of Congress sometimes likes to let the president take the lead and then complain afterwards if things go wrong instead of having <laughs> to take responsibility right away. Yeah, and we we seem to see that a, a lot in in recent years. I had read, uh, I think this was in um, Lon Hamby's biography of Truman, that Tr yeah, Truman talked to leaders of his own party, congressional leaders of his own party, who of course controlled uh, controlled Congress at the time, and they said, if you do this, the Republicans are going to are going to demand hearings on the extent to which the attack was or it was provoked by uh, Truman's foreign policy, specifically by Dean Acheson's speech in January 1950, where he seemed to suggest that Korea was outside of America's "quote unquote" defensive perimeter. So, and in any case, that's uh, that that that's I had always been curious why Truman did not uh, ask for a declaration of war. And in fact, that ended up being a precedent. We know now that the, the 19 December 11th, 1941, was the last time Congress uh, Congress declared war. Right. Although it's interesting, now. Uh, we don't declare war, but Congress will pass uh, OMFs, AUMFs, uh, authorizations of the use of military force, uh, like we did with uh, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and Congress likes to sort of wiggle its way out by saying, "Well, we never declared war." We only authorize the use of military force. Uh, you can ask, is that really a difference that's just really fine? And aren't you basically declaring war uh, if you're authorizing the president to use military force in a different country? So it's a way of it's a way of declaring war without really taking responsibility for declaring. For declaring right. And I think this goes back to where we started. Uh, these were some of the problems Hamilton saw and Washington saw as well. Uh, that Congress as an institution, uh, it's very well set up to deliberate. It's very well set up to pass legislation. But those institutional capacities might not help when it comes to war and foreign policy. And there's political incentives like re-election, especially every two years in the House of Representatives. These things might be disadvantages when it comes to war and foreign policy. Whereas having that one person uh, who can make up his mind, act quickly, speak with one voice, have control over the ambassadors, have that access to secret intelligence, all of that might favor the president and make the president more likely to act and act successfully uh, during war. Wow. All right. So uh, we're coming to the end of our time together. Uh, Maybe we could talk a little bit about the relevance of all this for contemporary politics. Yeah. Uh, so we're lucky in some extent. We're lucky as long as we don't get into another full total war. Uh, but that's always a bet that you have to ask if you're willing to take. Uh, so it's, of course, relevant any time we do get into a war situation or a situation that could lead to war. Uh, it's always important to remember just what can the president do? Uh, how far can the president go? And what can he do to us as American citizens? Uh, but I think it's also relevant uh, because we see an emphasis today on emergency powers. 
Uh, and this is a bipartisan trend. Uh, presidents of both parties are guilty of this. That presidents like to make other things that aren't war into rhetorical equivalents of war. Uh, they like to use the war analogy for other things. Uh, and there's a clear reason for that. It's accepted that the president's powers are at his broadest during war. And so if you can make something else into a warlike situation, that could justify broader powers. Uh, FDR was a master of this uh, with the Great Depression and casting it as a war. Uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, fought a war on poverty. Uh, Ronald Reagan fought a war on drugs. Uh, President Trump made the comment uh, during the beginnings of the COVID pandemic that I guess I'm a wartime president now. Uh, presidents might not even know they're doing it. Uh, it might just be sort of a reaction or reflexive in some way. Uh, but presidents do this all the time, and governors too, uh, during the COVID pandemic, since it was much more at the state level. Uh, you saw a lot of governors uh, use the war analogy. Uh, a few governors uh, like to compare those who didn't comply with COVID measures uh, as draft, they compared them to draft dodgers uh, during World War I. It's really interesting, uh, and there's the logic of why you do it. Uh, at the same time, I'd say the Constitution cautions us against it, uh, especially at the presidential level, uh, because there is no constitutional emergency power. Uh, the president doesn't have the power to respond to bad things, uh, to things that are crises. He has the commander-in-chief power, uh, which is the power to respond to war uh, and to control the military, especially when dealing with war. Uh, so I think the Constitution would warn us that things that are bad but aren't war aren't the same, and they don't necessarily give the president the same type of powers. So this is all very interesting. Uh, it would appear that Whatever the founders may have uh, anticipated that presidents would, what powers presidents would claim uh, during time of war, presidents have in practice, perhaps almost from the very start, had a broad definition of what they could do under the Constitution, and in fact have continually expanded the scope of those powers in response to actual war or warlike emergencies or even even simply by using the metaphor of war as in recent events. So this is great stuff. I want to I want to thank our guest Ben Slomsky for joining us today. I want to thank you all for listening and from all of us at the American Idea, I'll say have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.